Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Kia ora, Peter. It's lovely to see you there. Kia ora, Bernard. I was wondering about with that new jazzy um, intro from Simon, our producer, and, and you doing an introduction that essentially we'll, all, we'll be replaced by AI soon. They'll just do a voice print of our oh, yes. previous hoons, and then we'll just turn them all over again with me interrupting Josie and, and telling bad <laughs> jokes. It'll just be, you know, it'll be on a loop. Oh, the poor AI. I mean, there'll be an awful lot of computing power use in all of that. Um, yes, Great to see you. Um, looking forward to a, a quite uh, jam-packed hoon today because there's news. Well, there's news. News sort of breaking, isn't it? There? There's news about news with the um, with yeah. with the coalition talks supposedly having ended in an agreement, but now it has. We have to wait overnight for who leaks first, which I would That's be it. incredibly surprised if it's not David Seymour. But uh, carry and on. And a few and a few people. It's a real mess. Mm. Uh, not just a mess of a negotiations process, but a mess of an announcement. So about four thirty, we heard from Christopher Luxon's press spokesman that. A statement had, had come out saying they had agreed terms of an agreement and that now it was just going back to the party boards to be signed off and there would be an actual signing ceremony in Wellington tomorrow. Cool. Because they're mm-hmm. all at Wellington now. And uh, and that Christopher Luxon would hold what they call a stand-up uh, on the tiles. So that's the part of Parliament um, just outside the debating chamber, which is the absolute worst place in the world for sound. So mm. there's echoing stuff all over the place. There's people going in and out. There's people doing vacuuming on the floor above. Anyone in um, television and radio in New Zealand will just will screw their Dread face it. up when you hear, yeah. hear about a stand-up on the tiles because it's the worst thing ever. And Christopher Luxon's come out and said, hey, we've done a deal, but I can't tell you about anything that's in it. So I can't tell you who the Deputy Prime Minister is. I can't tell you whether there's going to be a referendum. You'll find out if there's going to be a referendum on the treaty tomorrow which isn't, I must say, uh, very reassuring. No, I'm profoundly concerned about that. But maybe we talk about that when Josie comes, because we've got Josie on today, I believe. And I, I, I find that whole idea so reprehensible and so undermining of the great advances that have been made in New Zealand in the last 30 years and um, just playing to a really awful crowd. But it is a crowd that I, I was thinking the other day that we predicted a little bit, you know, pretty powerfully. I mean, not that it was rocket science, but... You know that that the grumpy Pakeha vote would be very substantial this time. Yes, and uh, we have to hope that that path doesn't get taken. Uh, there'll be some strange thing that comes out, and the devil will always be in the details. Hopefully, there'll be some actual documents for us to look at tomorrow when it comes out. Um, I'm actually in Wellington at the moment um, for other reasons, and I may well be able to to go mm. along and see what's uh, coming up. but um, How well do you get on with Christopher Luxon? How, 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 have you had much to do with him? I've had a few conversations, but not as much as I've, I'd had with um, John Key or Jacinda mm-hmm. Ardern or Bill English. And that's partly a reflection of me not being around in Wellington quite so much anymore. But also he has been quite uh, strategic about... Uh, who he's spoken to and mm. who he isn't, um, and so I, to be frank, <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, have 
asked him lots of questions in press conferences. And uh, I think what we've seen in this negotiation process, which was him coming out uh, hard out of the block saying, I want to do this deal quickly. And I've done the opposite of quickly. Exactly. And yeah. I know how to negotiate. I've done it before in business. When actually, if you look closely at his record, the only deal he did, so to speak, when he was at Air New Zealand, when he was the CEO there, mm. was to cancel a merger or an acquisition, which was the deal with Virgin Pacific. And when he was at uh, Unilever Canada, when he was the CEO there, I've done some research on uh, the stats for acquisitions and mergers. Uh, there is a database uh, that is maintained by Standard & Poor's. Mm -hmm. And there were no deals done by Unilever Canada mm. while he was CEO in that database. So I think he has not covered himself in glory in this process. He has burnt through some of the goodwill that would have normally come to a, a brand new prime minister. And the honeymoon will be short. Uh, yeah. Not only because it's dragged on for longer than we expected, but you could argue he's been played pretty well by, by yes. certainly by Winston Peters, who didn't have a very strong hand, but the one thing he did have was time. And when Christopher Luxon came out very quickly and said, I'll do this deal quickly because I'm good at this. Mm. Winston, Winston Peters just said, says, it's not my first radio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeehaw, unfortunately. Who do you think, Bernard, Bernard, who do we look to to get the story? I mean, has, has Matthew Hooten been on the money about what the points of tension have been? I'm not sure that there are many journalists with access inside those negotiations in the same way that perhaps there might have been in the past. There's one or two who seem to know what's going on, but um, no, I don't think Matthew Hooten is as close to the National Party as he once was. As he'd like to be, ever, probably, yeah. Yeah, if he ever was. I mean, he picks up skerricks here and there around the, the edges. Uh, but remember, he was definitely involved in the Todd Muller fiasco, and there's a lot of people in the party who are not thrilled with that particular mm. exercise. And um, he's always been a controversial character within the National Party, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure he's not as close to the action as some might think. So who should we look to now? If we think about the next next couple of weeks, Bernard, just Ryan, because somebody's going to do, I hope, the kind of what we call a TikTok about this, about what the conversations were. Is that going to be, you know, Richard Harmon, who must be 300 years old by now, but is super well connected? Is it going to be Patrick Smelly? Who's 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 going to give us give us the the, the rundown? Mm. So I subscribe to uh, Richard Harmon. He will have good sources on the National and New Zealand First sides. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Andrea Vance, who, who wrote a book about Nationals' uh, troubles uh, um, last year, which was yep. quite uh, incisive and and good, will come up with something. And Tover O'Brien, who is at Stuff now, is also quite closely connected and loves a good scoop. So... I suspect, um, even though the announcement is not coming out today from Christopher Luxon's lips yeah. about the Deputy Prime Ministership and what the deal has been done, it will come out tonight and tomorrow morning in exactly the way you don't want these things to come out. If you have a deal to announce, come out and announce the deal. Don't come out and announce an announcement yeah. that is coming of an announcement. And I know that you know sometimes you, you, you want to try to control the narrative by just simply being there in front of the cameras. But coming out with nothing to say is is not a good look. It just undermines your 
authority and and your connection. And remember, this is an important time. This will be the first chance that he gets to, as Prime Minister, convince New Zealanders that he's got what it takes to lead the thing. He also made a big play of, of warning about the coalition of chaos uh, with a Labour-Green Tabati Māori deal. And what have we got? We've had uh, 40 days of negotiations and, to be fair, chaos, but no coalition until I mean, anyone now. would think we were the new Dutch government. Oh, well, we'll find out about how the Dutch go. Uh, we can talk about that later. That's going to be entertaining and, and maybe not. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not a great start for Christopher Luxon and the new national-led uh, government. All right, well, let's come back to that with... with um with Josie, and of course, we'll do a little business section at the end with um, with a little short discussion mm. on um, on OpenAI and the weird trapped in a revolving door thing of of its chief executive um, Sam Altman. Yeah, that's been an extraordinary story. It sort of captured the attention beyond the business world this week, and we will talk about that. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah, and I may have a count. I may have a good ca- well, not a good, but I may have a, have a countervailing, not entirely going with the flow uh, view on it. Oh, good, Catherine. Good. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good. Um, yeah, I, I, yep, I went out on the water today to to see the joys of of um, Auckland Harbour, and oh. uh, got one big bite, uh, which I assume was a snapper. But unfortunately, unusually, I didn't reel one in for my sure. for my dinner tonight. <laughs> sure, yeah. there was a bite one that got that, away. That was yeah, the one that exactly. got away. It's it, yeah, good to hear exactly. they're still out there. Yeah, well, yeah, apparently, yeah. yeah, yeah. Speaking of the one that got away, my segue into the climate debate is: um, uh, we had a Paris Agreement back in 2015, in which the Mm. great hope was that we would keep uh, warming down to uh, one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. Catherine, we've got a a COP, a huge conference, 66,000 people going to Dubai to talk about the climate, having jumped on a plane, most of them, and burnt some emissions. Tell us what we can expect or what we should look for from this year's COP. Yeah, well, fossil fuels is pretty high on the agenda at this year's Mm. COP for lots of obvious reasons, including that the president of the COP this year is is the head of a fossil fuel company, so um, that's nice and ironic for you. Um, But the the idea this this year is there's a big focus on on transitioning away from fossil fuels and to renewable energy, uh, but just pointing out that so far, all of the talk has been about growth in renewable energy, and very little of the talk has been about moving away from fossil fuels. There is still this 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 great magical dream that we can somehow transition without changing and without actually reducing our emissions. But when you look at the scale of the uh, growth that's still to come, according to the the economic growth that's baked into people's forecasts, even though there does seem to be now, in some places, a divergence between GDP growth and uh, fossil fuel emissions, even if you double and treble and quadruple the renewable power, you really are just sort of treading water in terms of catching up with the need for new energy as the economy grows, and you don't actually reduce that much at all. Yeah, and the important thing to note there is that it is not a transition until you start to reduce fossil fuels. Otherwise, you're just growing your total energy amount. So, you know, the the renewable energy has to be growing a lot faster than economic growth in order to start to see that kind of transition actually happening. And even though the percentage change will be quite quick, the base is still relatively low for uh, renewable energy 
and to really make a difference, as we saw this week in another report talking about the broken record of, you know, we must reduce fossil fuel emissions, the report showed that you actually need substantial reductions in emissions to get anywhere near a position where we can keep the warming of the planet below two degrees. And uh, this COP will um, try, of course, to increase emissions uh, reduction investment. Uh, what else are we going to see from this, uh, this COP? What else are going to be the big points of debate? I think there's a, a couple of things worth noting. I mean, one of the big points of debate is going to be about climate financing. So that's a, a really really important thing to try and um, build up climate financing, A, for mitigation and B, for adaptation, particularly in the global south. One of the big barriers to that actually happening is the fact that climate economics and the modelling is completely broken. And so that's sort of becoming more generally well-known and an interesting thing to talk about. The fact that in all of the models, um, what you see is that if you burn more fossil fuels, you grow your GDP higher and the temperature goes up as well, but the two things never seem to interact with one another. So, you know, according to those models, the, the best thing we can do to make ourselves better off is to keep burning those fossil fuels, not, not to invest in climate finance to stop it. So that's, that's obviously a big issue. And as long as there's no sign of, of fixing that, I think it's going to be a real struggle to get the climate financing where it needs to be. You know, until they're actually building in the real damages from not spending that money. And is is there much progress as well on on starting to build some sort of internationally recognised and acceptable emissions credits uh, trading scheme or um, the so-called uh, REDD, the the reduction in deforestation credits? Yeah, well, the um, draft rule book got put out last week for Article Six, and in particular that section 6.4, which deals with those carbon credit markets. It doesn't specify a lot about particular ways to go about um, reducing emissions like REDD+. They're all open to being used as long as they meet the rules. Um, so that, that rule book is one thing that they will be looking to get signed off at this meeting. And that should be interesting as well, based on what we discussed last week with some uh, figures in U UAE that, that are investing really heavily in forestry in Africa on the basis that they will be able to sell carbon credits to countries to enable them to meet their Paris targets. And there's a really unfortunate, um, I suppose you could call it arms race, a land grab going on in Africa with uh, some, let's say, interesting uh, parties involved doing an awful lot of damage pushing people around, uh, stopping people from using their traditional lands. And, you know, uh, these are parts of the world where the Russian mercenary group um, has been uh, active over the years, where all sorts of things are going on. And I think this is something that will come back up in our own government's discussions about how to deal with our Paris Agreements commitments, because at the moment, national uh, has said that it will have to buy credits on international markets to meet uh, its its Paris Agreement uh, rules. And remember, also, the European Union's Parliament voted this week to um, accept New Zealand's free trade agreement, which includes, baked in, uh, that we must meet our Paris Agreement targets. And the risk is that we end up buying all sorts of, frankly, dodgy 
hot air type uh, credits, as we saw with the previous national government. And um, what we see coming out of COP, I think, will be very interesting. Just finally, Catherine, um, a, a milestone this week on the actual climate itself. What have we seen? Uh, yes, we've seen um, two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures being hit for the first time on November 17. Uh, I mean, that's probably a transitory thing. It's not the sustained two degrees plus that you would need to breach the Paris Agreement targets, but it is a, a good waste station, a lot, you know, a worrying thing to happen along the track. Um, but one of the other things I actually wanted to point it out today is that this um, breaching of 1.5 and two degrees of warming, that is in the plan. <laughs> that is in the plan. We have planned to overshoot those temperatures and then claw it back in the back half of the century using... Um, using magical, more magical thinking. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while there's a bit of a, you know, panic going on at the moment that we're, that we're hitting these numbers, you know, you should understand we have planned to do that all along and there's now a bit of a scramble to work out how to communicate to the general public not to panic because those targets wanging by, that's, that's in the plan. Don't worry, we're going to claw it all back later. Yeah, I was wondering about this, Catherine, from the point of view of Dubai. That you know, D- Dubai UAE as the as the host of this COP, they're not going to be the one want to be the ones as something of a petro state to be the one where where that calls bullshit on the original Paris Accords, are they? They're not going to be the one that says, "Welcome to Dubai. We're never going to meet it here. They're being reorganised." Well, I mean, in the Paris Agreement, we we were never going to stay below those temperatures. The point is that you know we would get back to them eventually kind of a thing. But, you know, when you look at the IPCC's um, scenarios uh, where they plan, you know, different paths for getting there, none of the paths that that are below two degrees by 2100, they've all got these carbon, they've all got overshooting those mm-hmm. targets and then clawing it back later built into them. So that, that was already in the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement was we will overshoot those targets, but we will try to get back to them by 2100. That was the magic date. So what outcome would you think Dubai wants or Abu Dhabi, uh, UAE wants? I think UAE, I mean, I think those states will be very interested in the path for fossil fuels um, and making sure that they have a nice, smooth future where they can continue to sell those and maybe offset them somewhere yeah. else. And Catherine, are we sending are we sending you on a on a catamaran to to Dubai? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Bernard. Is it in the budget? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. We think we're going to do a dragon boat. We'll give you one paddle. One no, paddle. No, one paddle. <laughs> on side, you know, that's a long a long way. Mm. Sadly, actually, um, if you go up towards Dubai in the UAE, you've you've got to watch out for the pirates. But yeah, off Somalia. Well. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's so. True. I suspect that's part of the reason why people are flying to Dubai as well, to avoid the pirates. Hey, Catherine, thank you very much. We won't send you to to Dubai in a dragon boat or any sort of catamaran or anything. I won't miss it. (laughs) See you later. Hi, Professor Patman. How are you? Hi. Robert, lovely to see you. And um, Good to see you guys. Just a, an update, if you haven't already seen it, the government negotiations have finished and an announcement will come with a signing ceremony tomorrow. Supposedly. And... Uh, but we don't know who the foreign minister is, who the deputy prime minister is, whether or not there's going to be a treaty referendum. We are uh, in the dark, unfortunately, on that. So it gives us a good chance to go around the world and see if we can keep things on the go. How's it going, Josie? 
I do, is I that do. all right? Perfect. Oh, that's lovely. Lovely to see you and lovely to hear you. You're sounding great. Thank you. We were just discussing the, the Luxon's performance on the tiles this afternoon, which is to say, you know, we've reached agreement, but it goes back to the three parties tonight and nothing's going to leak and we'll just tell you what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, I, I'm not so – everybody's having a sort of mild panic about how long it's taken. And, um, I mean, really the, the, there's a much bigger question, I think, about why three centre-right parties are struggling to get agreement. And it's actually – I think there's a crisis. I'm so used to focusing on the crisis on the left mm-hmm. of what the centre-left looks like, but I think there's a crisis on the centre-right. You know, are they populists? Are they libertarians? Are they prudent managers of the status quo? Those are all very different modern versions of the right. That's going to make this coalition quite fractious, I would have thought. That they, they, yeah, you know, each, and- each, each of those other two, the ACE Act and, uh, and New Zealand First, is going to have to sort of lay out their stall quite aggressively, no? Yeah, and I think if you think about Luxon as, I suppose, the, the continuity of the sort of John Key, manage the status quo carefully, prudently, uh, you know the, the the sort of conservative protector of traditions and and um, uh, you know carrying on as normal. Then you've got ACT, who are the sort of libertarians. Then you've got New Zealand First, who are the sort of nationalist populists, if you like. So yeah, those three strands are are, are really difficult. And I think Luxon's challenge is is to sort of take a leaf out of you know Rory Stewart's book. Um, and Rory Stewart, you know, who's the most liked Tory in the world, even from but people like me himself. on the, yeah. <laughs> Particularly by himself, yeah. Um, but you know, he he. Just, I've got a quote from where he describes, um, you know, my vision of conservatism is limited government, individual rights, prudence at home, strength abroad, respect for tradition, love of my country, and you know, hold me accountable for what I do, um, and and I expect to be judged on that. So I think Luxon has to sort of really own that mm. centre right ground um, and make it sound exciting, because otherwise, Jesus, make it. I mean, Making it sound exciting is going to be quite tricky, tricky for him because I, 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 yeah. his sort of managerial approach is—it certainly mm. puts me off because I feel as though I've seen it, seen it before. Which is not to say that one wants you know total charisma all the time, but that kind of—I've run an airline before, and this is this is how I negotiate—is just doesn't really wash with performing seals yeah. like Winston Peters. So I, th- I think they've got to, yeah, so that's why I think he has to own, uh, in the way that I think the left has to own a more muscular centre, if he can own a more, you know, radical centre-right that's a reforming government, mm-hmm. then I think, you know, then he'll be able to own reform. So that might, that'll be, you know, reforming the public sector, you know, making, focusing on delivery, not the numbers of public servants and so on. He can make a narrative out of that. And I think that's what he's what he's got to do. They've got to be a reforming government. And if you think about it, they were reforming. They were reforming around the treaty. Uh, they were reforming around trade. You know, they were radical around both those issues, you know, back in the day. Um, where they've never been particularly good at reform is actually the public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and they favoured austerity, if, if anything, you know. And so I think I think their priorities have to be the things that they've failed at before. And if they can get that right, then then that centre ground that Luxon wants to inhabit, I think, mm-hmm. um, could be defined by reform. So public sector reform is presumably going to be things like eliminating the Maori Health Authority on Monday, announcing well, it on Monday? I mean, 
if it's just cuts, <laughs> Peter, that then it will fail, right? If, if the narrative is just Tory government cutting, there's no surprises there, right? Whereas if it's something like how do we how do we make policy advice more contestable? How do we have a contest of ideas? How do we, um, uh, you know, how do we get the public sector to deliver better? So I mean, if they can do that rather than what what we expect them to do, which is exactly that. Yeah, cut. I'm not sure that they'll see that as a cut, though, so much as a as a reform to a policy that they thoroughly disagree with, not just for, for racial grounds. But what, what do you think? I mean, I, this is a very potentially ugly area for this government to go down to go down the route of. I mean, we've already seen this weird thing at the um, at MFAT, the removal of Toreo from certain documents sort of in the week leading up, weeks leading up to this. This could be a very ugly turnaround of a very long-standing National Party support for the treaty, couldn't it? You know, this, this if, depending on what, not, not knowing exactly what they've done, but it's clearly yeah. been, a, been a big enough point of contention for it to be one of, it would appear, one of the larger points of contention in these negotiations. Yeah, they could spectacularly muck it up. You're right, and and by by coming across as um, the sort of anti Tereo Māori party, but I think what's happening, and to give them benefit of the doubt, I think what they're trying to do here is target what New Zealand First have identified as the sort of capture by elites mm -hmm. of the Tereo Māori agenda in government, and and if they can separate that off, because I think. And we've talked about this before. I think Māori politics is fracturing as well. I mean, you've got, you know, the likes of Winston Peters, Shane Jones, you know, your top three positions in New Zealand first are all Māori. David Seymour, Māori. Um, you know, they're looking to kind of take on the elites. So they've managed to kind of generate the mm. sense of, you know, the, a problem is, and now the problem is the sort of Māori elites in government departments. So if they can do that without sounding anti-Māori and, you know, and be the advocate for Or anti-elitist, that would be a terrible thing. Class, yeah. If they can be anti-elitist and not anti-Māori <laughs> and be on the side of working class Māori, they yeah. might get away and, with and it. And we know how, mm. we know how good anti-elitism is. Mm. Uh, it's always fun well, watching the elites trying to pose, present themselves as anti-elites. That's right. It is. It is. Have yes. we, have yeah. we had historical precedents for this kind of thing, Robert, where ignorance is ignorance is taken as a as a virtue? Well, we heard about a certain gentleman in in Washington who was pledged to drain the swamp, mm. and then mm. when he pointed his first cabinet, it was full of the swamp. Exactly. So yes. it was. You know, it, I I think that Chris Luxon's got a major challenge on his hands. And you, uh, a challenge in the sense of of wrestling wrestling these rodeo riders to the ground. Well, I, I think he part of his appeal was um, he part of his appeal during the election was what I call to the middle ground that was disenchanted with the Labour Party uh, and its governance. And I, I think he's I think he's playing with fire if he becomes too reformist or if you like trying. To, to undo what's been done. Uh, mm. you, you have to be very careful with this. I mean, I, I thought part of his appeal was to make the current system work much better. He was very careful, for example, during the campaign uh, to say that the health system was safe under mm. his leadership and that certain institutions would not be touched. And, uh, you know, that may be a disappointment to the likes of David Seymour. It, but uh, you know, it will be very interesting to see how this is played out because uh, personally, I think uh, that you know he have his work cut out keeping this coalition together. And unfortunately, it hasn't been a great start. Um, as we were talking at the at the beginning, Christopher Luxon came out with a hiss and a roar and said, "I'm going to do this deal quickly. I'm really good at negotiating things." 
And that meant um, Winston Peters saw some leverage and he grabbed it and held on to it for 40 days. Mm. He's discovering the the big gap between uh, declaratory statements in politics and substantive action. And, uh, Mm. you know, it was like his big thing he said in the campaign, oh, I've seen lots of, overseen lots of mergers in my time in a corporate sense. But in fact, you know, some journalists have subsequently done some digging and discovered actually he hasn't seen, overseen as many as he implied. And there is a world of difference between the, you know, a corporate context and the hurly-burly context of professional politics. So it would be very interesting to see this. He's relatively inexperienced. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about Luxon's position, I mean, he may confound everyone and do really well. And in a sense, I hope he does. But what I'm saying here is that uh, the big difference between someone like Hipkins and Luxon was that Hipkins had worked his way up through a succession of senior jobs, whereas Chris Luxon came from virtually came from the corporate sector with high level backing from John Key, and found himself in a, a plum seat, and now he's leader mm. of the party. So, he, you know, I, I think Mr. Peters will probably fancy his chances in negotiations. Uh, he's been around a long time. Uh, he's I, very wily. Yeah. To get to give Luxon the benefit of the doubt again, um, I, I think there are two things that he's done quite quite well. One is having the coalition negotiations in Auckland, so moving it away from Wellington, away from the sort of parliamentary, you know, doorstopping mm. on, I mean, okay, they've been doorstopping at the hotels, but, you know, that was quite a, that's that's never been done before. And the second thing that's never been done before is to, is for the three leaders to meet before the deal is done. Mm. So that's, that's quite interesting. So you know, you could potentially say that maybe he has done it slightly differently. You're right mm. about the mergers and acquisition thing. That was a silly, silly way of saying I can do negotiations because I've done lots of mergers and acquisitions. Actually, most people in their career, corporate careers, only ever do one, <laughs> maybe two mergers or and acquisitions. So it was kind of silly and it's irrelevant to political negotiations. But the other thing he did that was quite clever was he defanged APEC as a as a potential tool for mm-hmm. Winston or David Seymour to use by saying, well, you know, if I don't go, I don't go. There'll be other chances. It doesn't matter. So suddenly that sort of timeline of like, we've got to get it done so I can get to APEC was, was taken away and the negotiations have taken as long as they have taken. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, we're, until we see the negotiation deal, if it if it's mm. if it's one where you think, wow, that's clever, he's managed to juggle these strands of conservative politics, libertarian status quo, populists. If he's managed to do that um, and carve out the ministerial roles, I mean, Fiji uh, Prime Minister Rambuka, they have three deputy prime ministers because they've got two coalition partners, I think that's right, and and three deputy prime ministers, so three and parties three coups. in government. And, and yeah, but before the coalition, to be fair, I mean, who knows, maybe another one's brewing, but yeah. So let's put, let's put this into context for both of you, because the uh, I wrote something today about Millet, the new uh, rather bonkers-seeming mm. Argentine president, with the uh, his chainsaw-wielding tantric sex teaching uh, approach and his mad hair. I mean, mad hair seems to be to be to be an absolute priority because you've also got Gert, Wild, Gert Wilders in um, the Netherlands becoming yeah. the largest largest party overnight. He's got bonkers hair. Um, apart from the the hair today gone tomorrow uh, aspect of this, are we seeing another resurgence of the right? 
Oh, I, th- I think definitely so. I mean, God, he's a bizarre... Javier Mil- is How do you pronounce his name? Mil- 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 Millier. Javier ha- Millier. Millier. Yeah. Um, you know, he looks like the offspring of... Liberace and a Bond villain and, you know, kind of mad, coked-up eyes of Angry Bird. I mean, he just looks insane. Oh, Jesus, you should have um, a column in the post for, the, for with, with this kind of witty rhetoric. I've just yeah. written that, that line in, in my column. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm plagiarising myself. But, oh, but um, did, you get, did you get the tantric sex teacher thing in there, though? I, I didn't. I did get the chains. Talking of, you know, uh, cuts to the, to the public sector, he got a brilliant chainsaw to cut the public yeah. sector. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so I do think we are seeing Right, you look at you mentioned uh, the Dutch election, which is a big shock after um, you know many how many years of it was Mark Rutte uh, as a sort of centre left, well, a sort of centre party yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, that's a real shock. And, and, and also and, in, in, in the Netherlands, which I mean, I drew I drew a comparison between which which may sound bonkers, except that I don't think it actually is. The, the you know dollarization of of and, and mass privatization in Argentina is not is not, is it, there's a weird echo in there for me of of uh, Rogenomics, which is which is that the, huh. the foundations of the economy get over get overturned almost overnight, um, theoretically. But no one has ever dollarized an economy as big as Argentina. The thing that they have that we it's hard for us to understand in New Zealand is immigration is such mm. a huge issue in places like Holland. But, you know, right wing government in Sweden, uh, the right is on the rise in Finland. Um, uh, so I think, yeah. And next year, I mean, next year, there are the more people than ever before will, will go to the polls and vote. Um, I think there's something like 76 countries mm. will have mm. some form of election that involves all voters, so either local or, or national. But I mean, look at the ones we've got next year, the US, um, Taiwan, Indonesia, um, uh, Brazil, Mexico, Pakistan. I mean, is the Commonwealth know. sending a sending a team of election observers to the United States next year? I think you and I should go as you know one of those observer observer things to make sure that there aren't piles of Trump votes you know lying in a ditch somewhere. Four billion people will vote <laughs> in those countries. I, just, I think we're better well, getting no, no, four, four billion will vote just in the US. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think uh, next year is going to be. In, we think this year was volatile. I think next year will be even more volatile. Don't you, Robert? Yeah, I think it will be. Um, the right have had some defeats, though, as well as successes. And the interesting thing is that I'm not sure it's a surge to the right, or rather, there is widespread discontent with the status mm. quo. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that they're looking to people who present themselves as outsiders. Uh, if we look at Javier Millet, part of his appeal is, A, he's a celebrity, he's well-known in Argentina, and uh, he also is extroverted and he's outspoken. And also he's playing the card that if you vote for me, I'll put it all right. And many populists do this, which is attractive when you've got so many people who are hurting and have yeah. lost faith in the established political system. So, um, yeah, I mean, we may also see left-wing populism as well as right-wing populism, but they don't tend to do well in power populists, and I, I'll be very interested to see how um, Mr. Millet makes out or President Millet um, copes with the situation because he could quickly get into big problems. Uh, but, you know, the economies are so interlinked globally. It doesn't matter what you say about making Argentina great again. You can be sunk simply for a lack of international confidence. That's right, and this this is a country that suppressed its own inflation and unemployment data. Yeah, fired the head of the statistics department, I think, for for, for that as well. And 
when I think about, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on Argentina because I, I actually put an error into that thing today, but, um, you know, Peronism, which sort of ruled for 40 years, is is a really bonkers kind of statist, corporatist idea, which requires, you know, sort of strangely charismatic leaders, but a weird form of state ownership. Sort of a Argentinian version of New Zealand first. Well, yes, or an yes, Argentinian yes. version of um, Muldoon economics. Yeah, they've got a what was yeah. it one hundred and forty percent inflation? I think four in ten people in Argentina live in poverty. You know the yeah. the, the definition of poverty. Um, debt is their their public debt is uh, you know ninety five percent. So you can understand people looking for something yeah. alternative. The present yeah. the status quo is not working for and, most and, people. And the, the the progressive response to that has to be why aren't we getting that vote um, and why aren't people feeling like we can deliver mm. the change that's needed? So it's almost like we have to be the progressive populists. <laughs> Isn't there an irony here, though, Josie, that many people, the have-nots, the people who are doing very badly, have turned to Millet, who makes mm. no secret of the fact that he's mm. going to remove some of the support systems for precisely those people. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it's a sign of desperation, yeah. you know, in a sense... Yeah. Um, you think to yourself, well, it can't get any worse, maybe. Yeah. One of the things that um, really energised this campaign was this idea of dollarization, mm. which on the mm. face of it is quite appealing in Argentina, where they actually tried to do something like that in, in 2000. And there's been three other countries in Latin America, much, much smaller ones, who have uh, dollarized. Ecuador and Panama, isn't it, I think? That's yeah. right, yeah. And yeah. Um, when you look at the details, um, Panama dollarized essentially because it, it is a colony of the United States, um, that the Panama mm. Canal was definitely controlled by the United States. And that actually happened in 1904. The, the more recent dollarizations in El Salvador and in uh, Ecuador for much smaller economies. And it didn't go well, actually. When you look at what happened in Ecuador, the guy who dollarized there was kicked out in a another complete street revolution a year or so later, because when you dollarize, you effectively remove any savings that people mm. had in the local currency. And uh, Argentina may think this will be an easy route because so many people have shuffled their savings away into US dollars. And there is about $200 billion worth of US dollars owned and relatively liquid in Argentina, which can be converted. But that's nowhere near enough. That's less than a third of Argentinian GDP. And Argentina, with 44 million people, is 10 times larger than these other exactly. economies that dollarize in, the, in Latin America. So unfortunately, what appeals to be a, 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 as a, something that's easy to grab onto, that seems quite possible, is reaching for a real sort of shock therapy for your economy. And it's um, it's really sad because, you know, we have a lot of connections with uh, Argentina. There's mm. the whole rugby thing. But when you when you look around... Well, the Argentinians run, run Waiheke, as we know, too. Well, that's that's right. Um, fantastic. There's a whole Argentinian... I think there are two Argentinian football teams on Waiheke. Oh, and they win everything. Mm. They're fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but we are going to see quite a few um, economic migrants, actually, from Argentina, Brazil. We already already see them. And uh, mm. it will be disappointing to see. Now, the, the big news this, today, we sort of hinted at it earlier, was the win, well, at least Geert Wilders' party being the largest party in the Dutch situation. Do we know what, what's going to happen next, so to speak, in, in Holland? 
No, I mean, that's all that I have read. I mean, these are, you know, he's so a bit like um, um, Argentina, you know, it's a very fragile coalition, right? It's not like they've had a landslide victory and it looks like it'll be the same in in the Netherlands where um, um, Gert Wilders will will have the biggest party, but he's going to have to reach across the aisle. And and I think that's the thing in Argentina as well, that um, Javier... Is going to have to is, is going to have to a bit like Maloney in Italy, kind of temper down the the chainsaw tantric sex, you know, um, <laughs> dialogue. Or maybe he maybe he maybe maybe he tires maybe he accelerates the tantric sex and dials, dials down the chainsaw. But yeah, maybe the tantric sex can stay, but the chainsaw's got to go. And if you're trying to build, you know, <laughs> coalitions and partners and government, and and you know, watching the way Maloney's done that has been really interesting. You know, that when she campaigned, it looked like Italy might leave Europe, might leave the EU, all these mm. things where, you know, it was going to be a very uh, radical, semi-fascist government. And actually, it's been a pretty traditional kind of mm. right-wing government. And it's remained in Europe. It's been supportive of Ukraine. Yeah, um, very so supportive. So you might find with, 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 you know, Netherlands and Argentina that it, that, that, that it does, in government, it tempers down a bit. But it's still pretty alarming. And as you said, Robert, I mean, one of these things about populist governments is they remove the checks and balances. Mm. I mean, look at what Trump mm. did in the US. Mm. They try and remove the checks and balances on power. So they end up not delivering good policy. So in the end, they get chucked out. I mean, they, they don't last very long, you know, unless they manage to become fully-fledged dictators. But, yeah. But I think the Italian example is really interesting, Josie, because... You know, Maloney has shown herself to be a, a real pragmatist mm. in actual fact. You know, uh, we're all tigers out of office, as the expression says, but she's shown herself. She certainly was, re- you know, re- engaged in rhetorical excesses on the campaign trail, but has become much more measured in power. And I think many yeah. of us expected Mr. Trump to become like that, that once yes. he got mm. what he always wanted, which was the presidency, he would become quite magnanimous, but he didn't. He <laughs> confounded us. He just carried on. Yeah. Magnanimous is not a word that I would associate with Donald Trump. And on the Geert Wilders no. thing, one of the interesting things is that is that in the past, when his party the pronunciation, has, Peter, very good. Well, I, I know a few Geerts, um, <laughs> but thirty-five um, percent means they have to deal with him because in the past, even when his party has mm. done well, but hasn't done this well, he's been isolated mm. because people know that he really is the unacceptable face of of European populism. And I, I think there is some. That, you know those those that horse trading is going to be extremely difficult for the you know the vast bulk of the much more liberal uh, or progressive um, Dutch Dutch parties. And don't forget, um, is it what's his name? Um, Franz Timmerman. Mm. He's the um, Green Labour Coalition. They they were the second biggest party. So mm. you know these are as you said, Robert. These are countries. These are voters who are feeling you know very kind of. Um, you know, uh, trying to voting in a way to sort of do the fingers to whoever's in government at the time, and it almost it, it is a sort of you know the status quo isn't working for me. How do I communicate this? Oh, I'll vote for the other guys, yeah. whoever the other guys are. Um, so yeah, the second biggest party was the Green Labour Coalition. It's a real challenge to what I call the the consensus that operated in many liberal democracies that. Um, you can tolerate a certain degree. I mean, not this is not a precise observation, but there's been, if you like, um, a reconciliation between tolerating a certain amount of unemployment and also getting the the market economy to work reasonably well, and balancing that with you know a welfare state. And it, it seems to me 
that the you know this approach is coming under real strain because mm. for many countries it's just for many people it's not working and yeah. how can we you know the big challenge for us going forward not just in New Zealand but in many other countries is how can we make the economy work better for more people we have this incredible concentration of wealth in so many liberal democracies yeah. and yeah. It, and that is a real challenge and there's one response we're seeing, which is the populist response, which actually doesn't try and address the problem. It's based on personal charisma. And says, "Don't worry, I'll fix it, and you know the country will become great again." What they don't say is, "I'm going to make it even more unequal," and that's not what uh, President Millet is saying at the moment. He's saying he's going to make Argentina great again, but it'll be very interesting to see that if he emasculates the welfare state as he's promising to do, that some of those people who voted for him will you know have second thoughts do, do you think they're having do you think they're all sitting in podcasts now in uh, Buenos Aires and Amsterdam saying I wonder what Luxon's doing to 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 keep those other buggers in, in check in his in his coalition <laughs> yeah well that's why I liked it when I was at PIF um you know last week whenever it was two weeks ago but um you know one of a Samoan friend of mine who works in the Samoan government saying you know have you got have you guys got a government yet we're really worried what's happening in our backyard Exactly. <laughs> hey, so t- we, we, uh, amazingly, I dropped the Gaza thing down to down to number two in my uh, spinoff thing this week. Partly because I'm I'm totally exhausted by it, and probably you are as well. But very interesting that it would appear as though Biden held um, Benjamin Netanyahu by the testicles and forced him to agree this hostage deal, which will start on Friday. Yeah. Well, the real r- the real test will come. Um, if whether the deal can be extended, because there are signs in the United States that Biden's uh, unreserved support for Netanyahu's government is beginning to hurt mm. him, and uh, that that will be a worry going into the the twenty twenty four presidential election, and uh, also many Democrats is splitting the Democratic Party, and uh, you know he may have thought a month ago that the the best domestic political thing to do was give Netanyahu unreserved support. And it'll work out fine for the United States. It'll be an opportunity. The hug BB strategy. Yeah. Yeah, hug BB strategy and make links between Ukraine and one liberal democracy under threat and another Israel. But that narrative has not been bought by many people. And, mm. uh, you know, many people say, no, Israel uh, is a liberal democracy, but it's also an occupying power, whereas Ukraine is not occupying territory, which is uncontested. So, you know, it, there's some. I, I think that Mr. Biden has had a problem, and also the images, the fact that you've now got 1.7 million people displaced. That 75% of Gaza population has been displaced, according to the UN today. Uh, 14,000 people uh, have been killed, and 67% of those are women or children. And that is, you know, we live in an interconnected world. These images do go around the world. And I think sometimes politicians, particularly if I may say so, uh, mature politicians, sometimes un- underestimate the speed in which these images take place and, and register. Yeah. It's interesting to go back, though, Robert, to that Biden stuff, because um, you're right. I mean, I think it's like 60% or something don't think he's handling the uh, situation in Gaza well. But if you unpack some of that, um, a, a large percentage of that is people who think he should be even tougher on yes. Hamas yes. and yeah. more pro-Israel. So, And then you look at Trump and you think, well, Trump's ahead in the polls. So it comes back to our initial conversation is that 
if progressive parties aren't offering people, I'm just talking domestically here, but I, I think the real problem for Biden is if you're not offering something that people feel like their lives are going to be better off, the economy is going to be shared, mm. the, the proceeds of the economy will be shared with them, then they start to take it out on a, on a democratic government like Biden's. And so... Um, I think part of his problem is that, uh, um, you know, someone, I saw, someone said the other day, it's like they're planning to campaign in next year's election on, um, after all we did for you. Yes. You know, in other Why words, you should grateful. be so grateful. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's his political problem. Yeah. But but on the Gaza stuff, I've heard behind the scenes, I mean, I'm just reading stuff like you guys are, but... Um, that part of what he's trying to do with the Israelis is, and the Netanyahu government is to is to get them to a place where they will work with the Arab states Absolutely. they can work with, the Arab League, UAE, Egypt, Jordan, um, to come up with some plan about what what does what does winning look like, and winning has to look like Palestinian-led Gaza can't be the PLL. PLO initially because they're not strong enough, but you've got to support the PLO long term and you've got to have some Arab league. It's got to be Arab led. It's got to be Palestinian led and Israel have got to agree to that. So maybe mm. the long plan here is that Biden is, is you know, pushing Israel and Netanyahu to a position where they will agree to that, including, yeah. as you've said, Robert, many times they've got to withdraw from the settlements. I, I think that absolutely is, though, Josie, the, the American plan. The trouble is you've already got Two of Netanyahu's coalition partners, not just in yeah. the not just in the war cabinet, but coalition partners, saying mm. that this hostage deal is a gift to to Hamas. You've got the set. I mean, oh, yeah. you're not going to. I mean, this time you're not going to move six hundred thousand people out of the uh, out of those settlements. I think this is that mm. the. I, I was thinking about this because I did a lot last week about the the um the the supposed two party solution, and I just wonder whether that is completely mythical. Let me let me also just say somebody took Josh took me to task on the on the message for saying that I was uh, exhausted by the Gaza story, and of course people in Gaza are exhausted by that story as well. And how would mm. I feel about them? It's it's not so much the, the scale and horror of the story; it's the difficulty each week to try to mm. explain it. It's not it's not enough just to say. Seventeen thousand people died this week. You know, it's and here's what's going on. It's you've got to try and find more meaningful ways to explain where we're up to. I think, though, I mean, I I agree with Josie. I think that has been the calculation on Biden's side that by embracing Netanyahu, you can then subsequently influence him and perhaps rein him in. But viewed from outside the United States, uh, that's not good enough. I think America's international standing has taken a real hit over this. Uh, the fact is that we've been subjected to seven weeks in which uh, many innocent people have lost their lives. And that has really registered yeah, internationally. It has. It's all right trying to fix American domestic politics so the president can prevail in the next election. But for many people, America's international policy looks very partisan and very one-sided mm. and uh, not that you expect of a global superpower. And in fact... America's global standing has has been on the wane, has been on the decline since 9-11. Robert, what does success look like in Palestine? What does success look like is it, something that's different from what we've seen in the past um, because what we have seen um, is the fact that Israel um, has at times paid lip service to a two-state two solution but in practice hasn't really provided a clear pathway. And it, while we are talking, it's not just Gaza that's a problem for the Palestinians, it's also the West Bank. Yeah. 
where, you know, since the 7th of October, armed settlers have increased with the support of the army watching. And mm. many Palestinian farmers have been harassed and worse than that, some killed, or in fact, close to 200 killed. So I think what is success is a departure from the status quo. We haven't heard from Mr. Netanyahu his political plan, um, mm. other than perhaps a reoccupation of Gaza, which the Americans have ruled out. Yeah. So what you can't reoccupy, you just destroy and make unlivable. Yeah. And one of the problems, one of the problems isn't, is, isn't it, is that Netanyahu knows that his political career is over the minute the military side of this ends. Yes. The whole cabinet's gone and a new government has to be um, uh, elected. But I, I think he's hoping that he can rebuild Absolutely. his reputation by being successful, smashing Hamas. Again, I think that's a fantasy. Uh, you know, even if they smash Hamas, it's not going to solve the problem of the political desire for self-determination. If anything, Israel is going to be more insecure after this military campaign in Gaza than it was before. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think the Americans have gambled that they can push Netanyahu into a position where he'd become more reasonable by embracing him. It, I'm not sure that assumption is going to hold up. I think it's going to do a lot of international damage to America's reputation in the interim. I think we should send our probable new new foreign minister Winston Peters in to offer offer Auckland offer the uh, the Cordes Hotel in Auckland as a new negotiating venue for the for the you know it'll be the Auckland Accords. Not All right, the, let's not have the, a bet. Who's eh? who's deputy prime minister? Winston or Seymour? Seymour. Hmm. What do you think, Bernard? I think I think Winston will get it, and that Seymour um, has negotiated something quite juicy like uh, education. So, Bernard, who do you think get the foreign minister's job? No, Robert, what do you think for, for deputy prime minister? You've got no, I agree. I actually agree with uh, Bernard. Oh, so three for Winston, three for Winston, one for David Seymour. No, I, yes. I, I think I think uh, I, I don't know. Of course, my crystal ball is <laughs> misting up by the moment, uh, but <laughs> I, I've got a feeling that uh, Winston will be deputy prime minister. Interesting, and foreign minister at the same time, so that he could be out of the country a lot. No, I think that the Prime Minister, uh, Chris Luxon, wants to keep the Foreign Minister's job out of Winston's grasp for some reason. I don't know. Maybe wrong. Maybe tomorrow morning all will be revealed and Winston has got the job. But it's very interesting speculation. Shall we, shall we, do, a, shall we do an emergency pod tomorrow, Bernard, if, if, if we get the results and we have something to say? I think that would be only a good idea if we actually have the detail in yeah, yeah, all of course. those documents. No, 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 of course. And, and uh, that would be... No, that, let's just I talk would... about our feelings. Let's just talk yeah. about our feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the meantime, I uh, it's quite fun um, to ask each other what's going on, but I thought it'd be fun to ask ChatGPT whether Winston will be the Deputy Prime Minister because the whole business of AI and open AI has been part of um, the general news this week. P Peter, could you give us a quick update on what's going on with OpenAI while I ask? Yeah, well, I, I think, Bernard, I, you know, when we, look, when, we, when we look back in a couple of years, this week is going to be the moment when the inevitable capture of the future of artificial intelligence was made by corporations. It will never again be non-profit organisations with missions to do good for the world and the public. It is now wholly bought and owned by the biggest companies in the world. I mean, I actually, How I, I have a different different view of this from many people because it it has been a fiasco. 
but OpenAI was directed by a non-profit organization that was committed to the peaceful and humane use of artificial intelligence. The board had a coronary when they saw it would appear that, that OpenAI may have been close to what's called um, uh, artificial general intelligence. And the fact that Microsoft has effectively taken both leadership and, and to some extent control, reimposed Altman as the chief executive, which might be the right thing to do, but just shows us that that era when a non-profit group of non-corporately motivated people could have directed our AI future is over, dead, borrowed, gone. Very well summed up, Peter. Mm. Mm, depressingly. The money has won. Meanwhile, I asked ChatGPT who would become the next Deputy Prime Minister, and ChatGPT was very cautious in simply saying that to find the most recent and accurate information, I recommend checking the latest news sources. Exactly, exactly, because <laughs> it, it only goes up to, I think, October to October 2021. So that's, yeah, probably barely, he's still in opposition as far as it's concerned. One, one, one final thing, just on the AI one, uh, you're absolutely right, Peter, and it tells you, it shows us better than anything that it has to be governments that regulate this new uh, technology. And so there's another challenge to this government to maybe lead on some of that stuff. Mm. Yep, and it won't be. And it won't. Um, it's gone. <laughs> mm. um, let me just give you a quick skateboarding dog, which is that the the um, Italian agriculture minister got the uh, high-speed train to stop at his own local station, which it wasn't scheduled at, so that he could get off. So he's been accused of using using the rail service as his personal luxury car. <laughs> What's the point of being in government if you can't stop the train and get off at That's your stop? That's exactly what Winston Peters said when I asked him about it. He said, this is not my first rodeo, young man. <laughs> rodeo. But didn't the trains run on time in Italy under, was it Mussolini? Yeah, well, allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you very <laughs> much, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you all. Thank you very much you. Uh, for the first hoon on a Thursday. I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, let's let's see whether tomorrow I, I've decided to start working a four day week, Bernard, which is since I do very little work any day of the week is is, is normal, really. <laughs> Other than submit my doctorate to um Robert for, for approval again. Yeah, we're waiting with bated breath for that. <laughs> Alrighty. Thank see you very you. much everyone. Thanks, we'll, guys. we'll catch you later. Thank bye you. bye. Cheers. Thanks everybody. Bye. bye.